I'm not going to wait for people to give me data. I'm going to figure out what data I need for the best insights, and I'm going to go and demand it from my support teams. Because those are service teams and service departments for your performance. And so if you can take that front foot, you can say, right, I don't want all of this bump that you're sending me, all this you know, raw data and, and information in terms of reports. Don't give me that. I want these insights. I want these questions answered and work with the teams and say, in order to derive those insights, I need to pull this data together in this kind of format. I want you to analyze it in this way and help me make a better decision, which is what insights do. Welcome to Management Development Unlocked, where you will learn how to nurture a world-class management team. And now your host, Eric Gerard. Welcome to another episode of Management Development Unlocked. I am superlatively glad that you're here. Please remember to support the show by subscribing, commenting, and sharing. Today, I am pleased to have Paul Teasdale with me. Paul, welcome to the show. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolute pleasure to be here. Who am I? Well, I'm a, a father of two. I'm a husband, a friend to many, but ultimately, I love to connect people. And I love to connect people with ideas and people with performance and people with other people. So I love to connect. And in my day-to-day job, what I do is I help people accelerate their performance, primarily using lessons from the high-performance world of Formula One, which is where I had the privilege of working for seven years of my career, although it's not the only part of the high-performance world that I've worked in. All right. So just based on the conversations you and I have had and the, the conversations that I've had with our mutual friends, I can only imagine what you'd like to hang out with in person. So I would love to, to have that privilege at some point. Definitely. But you just dropped a little a little bomblet, which is you worked in F1. Now, I'm not a huge F1 fan, but I do know what F1 is. And I, and I know how data, data-based it is and how science-based it is. Yep. And I would just love to hear how you got into F1, because you don't just show up at McLaren's head, headquarters and ask for a job. Like You, you took a, a path to get there, and I'd love to hear what that is. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly random path. And uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and I, uh, they said, I don't think there's many sausage makers turned bankers who ended up in Formula One, which is pretty much part of my journey that got me to where I am today in the, in the Formula One world in particular. So my background's in manufacturing. I took a, a couple of jobs out of university in repairing and overhauling airplane engine parts and then got into a food manufacturing world. And I was a production manager in a sausage factory for a while. Got a lot of lessons, particularly around people management in that space. But then I took a, a couple of different roles. I worked in consulting in food manufacturing predominantly for a number of years. I worked in shipping, moving tankers around the world. And then I took the move to move over to New Zealand, where I joined a big dairy company out there, working in their headquarters, make, helping them make better decisions as to where to put the milk. And then got made redundant from there, moved into a random job in banking, working for the business banking team for a bank over there. And then when me and the wife decided we wanted to move back to the UK, I reached out to the network and I wanted to be able to go back to the UK knowing that I was joining something special and something that was going to ignite the passion in me. And the common thread throughout my history to that point and still now is about helping people perform. It's about helping people get the best performance they they can get. Now, I'm not an F1 fan, so I wasn't specifically looking to join an F1 team. 
I happen to have a friend in my network, and this is the power of networks at times, who worked at McLaren, still does, in the simulation team. And he was running the simulator there and all the data analytics and wonderful development work they did in that space. And he said, ah, I think there's a job going in that space. So this guy, Damien, who's in our team, he's doing that sort of thing. He's a bit of a one-man band at the moment. He's looking to expand the team. Maybe I'll put you in touch with him. And so I got in touch with Damien at McLaren, had some conversations over the phone, like late at night for me, early in the morning for them. And it was all going really well to the extent where I was like, I'm never going to get a job offer by just being over the phone the other side of the world. It's very difficult to show that you're serious if you are saying, yeah, when you give me the job, I'll move back. So what I did was I jumped on a plane and flew 26 hours to come and have an in-person interview. Not that they'd asked me to, but because I knew that was the way to accelerate this process and to make them know that I was serious about wanting to do that. And actually, I still remember, I knew about McLaren. I'd obviously done a lot of research to get there. But the first time I worked in, walked into McLaren Technology Center, it just blew my mind. And I knew, you know, this is the sort of performance environment that I want to be in that's going to inspire me and I'm going to be able to inspire, inspire others off the back of this as well. Oh, I can only imagine <laughs> what what McLaren's headquarters must look like. I'm a huge fan of the show Top Gear, and right. you know, and the one that succeeded that, um, the Grand Tour. Yeah, and and those guys love McLaren. They love <laughs> F1, so yeah. it's kind of rubbed off on me a little bit. And and I think I would be I would be beside myself just to be in the building. Yeah. So so you know, you walk in and you you realize that you're you're obviously among people who are serious about their craft. Mm. Say more about what that was like. Was it, you know, was it magical? Was it kind of eh? I mean, you know, how did you respond? So it's interesting. You can actually go onto Google Maps and search for McLaren Technology Center, and you can have a virtual tour walk through what they call the boulevard there. Now the boulevard is set up specifically and purposefully to inspire people. And one of the things I learned early on is that the whole everything that was done at McLaren was done for a purpose. And it's done because it's an environment, one, to inspire the team and the people who work there, but also a Formula One team is a marketing division with a racing team attached, essentially. So it's all about getting the money in. And when you're dealing with getting money in from big, high-end, high-net-worth individuals when it comes to the cars, high-net-worth businesses when it comes to the sponsors and things like that, you know, it takes a bit to be standing out from the crowd. And just take a look at that at the tour of McLaren Technology Center, and you'll start to realize why it stands out for the crowd. It's it's a beautiful setup, and the way in which you enter the building as well, which you don't, I don't think you'll get this through Google Maps, is you park in a car park where you can't see all of what you um, what you're about to see. You walk underneath through a tunnel that's pure white walls. And all of this is deliberate, again, to make you sort of clean your mind and stop you from thinking about the outside world. And you're in the basement level, and you get in a lift, a glass lift, and you go up. And as you go up, you arrive into the boulevard area, and you see all these cars from McLaren's history. And you see how it's all set up, and you see the lake outside, and there's generally swans swimming there. And you know, on a, on a winter's day, because that lake is also the heat sink for a lot of the manufacturing plant as well, it, it always it's always warm, so it steams up. It's just magical place to be, and so yeah, that that experience was amazing. 
And then when you got to speak to the people, you start to realize just how, as you say, top of the game they were, no matter what position they were in, they've got the best people in the world. And one of the things I, I said, I remember saying early in the interviews, you've got loads of really smart people. Now you need me to balance that out. <laughs> and what I, what I meant by that <laughs> is you've got people who are really specialist in doing things right. Now, what I noticed from the early stages was they weren't necessarily doing the right things. Mm. When you get you know, people who are you know, data analysts, modeling and simulation experts working on some amazing projects at the top of the game, they are interested in the really interesting problems. Now, they're not necessarily the right business problems that the customer wants you to solve. And that was the conduit that I was playing. You know, I was, I was the intermediary between McLaren and the client to say, what are your actual challenges and where do we need to point our expertise in order to get the best benefit for you? And then I had to sort of keep things interesting for the, uh, for, <laughs> for the, for the modeling and simulation team that I worked alongside as well to make sure that they had some interesting challenges assigned them. Oh. And keeping top performers like that interested in something must have been a challenge in itself. Yeah. I mean, I'll, first first job, first project that I came back to was working for a supermarket company on shelf stacking. So you can imagine, you know, firstly, what has that got to do with Formula One? But also, if you're a modeling and simulation engineer who's been enticed into McLaren to work in Formula One in the top end of your game and you go, right... We want you to model the supermarket for shelf stacking purposes. You know, you've <laughs> you've got to find a way to make that interesting and challenging for them. And it is it's what I, I sort of learned early on is those people love the challenge of the problem. It's like, oh, I bet you can't solve this problem. You know, this this model is far too complex for you to. Oh, right, that's it. Right, <laughs> let me let me get into that, and I'm going to solve it. So, yeah, it was um, a fantastic world to live in. So what was the purpose of the the supermarket shelf stacking exercise was it was it solving problems to make pit pit crews more efficient or or what was it No so the part of the business I worked in predominantly anyway it changed a little towards the end was called McLaren Applied Technologies and they were taking the ways of working the methodologies and some of the technology that had made McLaren so good over the years and were applying that to external businesses so the supermarket company was a client and they were saying, right, we are spending a billion pound a year on the labor cost alone of putting things onto supermarket shelves. And by the way, we haven't got a clue as to how much of that is wasteful. We've got some vague you know, anecdotal evidence, but we've got no data to back up. Actually, if we do something different, how are we, you know, we going to measure and manage whether or not that's effective? And also the way in which they did different things was to say, right, let's pick a single store, test out our theory, and if it works, we'll expand that across the whole network. Now, that's very time-consuming in the first place. It's also high risk because if you get it right in one place, doesn't mean you're going to get it right in other places. And if you get it wrong in one place, it's all too easy to then write that idea off, and it might be for various other reasons. So what we were doing is building a taking the approach that McLaren had taken to modeling and simulation and say, right, if we create a virtual environment where you can model your stores and test what would happen if you, I don't know, changed your product range from 50 different types of soup down to 20. 
that has an impact on you know the way in which your products come off the shelf and go back on the shelf. Therefore, how many gaps are left on the shelf? How many times are people bringing product to the shelf and there being no space? And you, know, you can start to run these different uh, sort of tests in a virtual environment that are almost instantaneous. And then you can do things in a virtual world you could never do in the real world at much higher speed so that you pre-test everything that you want to test. And that's what Formula One's all about these days. You test everything in the simulation world. You never never make a change unless you know it's going to work. <laughs> and that's a difficult thing to do unless you've got something like a, a, a virtual environment or a, a digital twin of what you do. Right. Okay. That's that's very, very cool. <laughs> so let's let's now apply this to leadership and management. Mm. Because after all, this is not a car show. This, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a management show. So what are some of the key leadership lessons that you learned from working at McLaren? Yeah, so this is where a lot of my journey through McLaren sort of taught me these lessons. And it's what I do uh, these days is I help leaders in particular with these, uh, bring in this inspirational element of what can you do that they do in Formula One? You know, and what are those things and how can that be accessible to you? So there are a couple of key things that came out to me. One of them was the attitude that was taken towards leadership. It's like knowing your role and knowing what your role is and isn't. And there's a great story I've, I've told a few times on, you know, the car is a, you know, waiting to go onto the grid. The race is about to start. You're about two minutes out and the car isn't started. There's a problem with it. And you've got an engineer literally underneath the car trying to fix this and understand what's going on. In that moment, the senior leader from McLaren standing in the pit lane with a partner client next to them. So a really senior person who's given a lot of money to this business, partly to see it succeed so that their brand can succeed along with it. And they're looking at this leader from McLaren and saying, you know, why aren't you shouting up and down and going and sorting this problem out? You know, you it has to happen. Go, go, go. And the leader from McLaren's like, that's not my job. My job is done by now, predominantly. Because my job is to make sure that those people who are trying to solve that problem right now have the tools and the confidence to actually solve that. And they talked a lot about what they call decisions at the point of most knowledge. So it's not my job to make a decision if I haven't got the most knowledge. The person who has the most knowledge is currently underneath a car with a spanner in his hand. So he's got the most knowledge and I he better know that he's got the authority to make whatever decision is necessary to get that car going. We all know what we want to do. You've got the authority to go off and, and make that decision. And then the other thing that came along in that same story as well is he said, the other thing as a leader that I'm there to do is to look for the eyes. And what do you mean by that? And he said, well, if you look at the team now, the team that are supporting, that are surrounding this car at the moment, who are they looking to? Where are their eyes naturally going when they've got a question or they need some guidance? Because that is the leader in your team. And it might be, or it's a leader in your team, and it might be somebody who's already in a leadership position, in which case, great, let's let's uh, nurture that and do more with it. But it might be somebody really junior. It might be somebody who's been there many years, but has always been in, a, in one particular role, but their experience is valued. So actually what you're seeing is as a leader, when those things are going on, your job is not to get involved in the minutiae. It's to stand back and to look for the eyes and understand what's going on. And I think when you start to take those high-performance leadership lessons and leadership stories away from McLaren and start to say, right, what can you do 
in your business, do you want to have decisions at the point of most knowledge? And what does that mean to your business? How do we do that? How do we make that happen for you? And then when a problem's happening, are you looking for the eyes or are you, you know, rolling your sleeves up and getting in amongst it? And when you really ask yourself the question, is that really your job? Because uh, you know, you've know you put yourself in a leadership position or you've, you've earned a leadership position. Your job is not to do the do anymore. It's to make sure that the do is done. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it, it's an interesting world. Yeah. And, and, you know, I could, I could see how a leader could actually cause problems with productivity mm. if they jump in when they're not the one who knows the most. Yep. And you know what? I'm the senior leader. I used to have that job. I know what to do, but their, their expertise is a few years out of date. Yep. And they, they get in and start mucking around and actually pull the team backwards and pull them off their game. Yeah, yeah, I could see how that would be a real problem. Yeah, micromanagement in those situations is it might get you through the moment, but it will not help you in the long run. No, yeah. no, not a bit, not a bit. And that was a mistake that in my book I talk about this. Where the first thing I did when I took over my my first team was micromanage the bejeebers out of them. Right, just yeah. you know, it was just right in there. You know, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why'd you write that in that email? And it was just the wrong thing to do. So yeah, it feels productive though. I've been in that situation myself. You know, you feel as if you're adding value in that situation and you've got to be able to stand back and really reflect and say, is this what is needed for us all to perform? Absolutely. All right. Well, since we've started to talk about pitfalls a little bit and, mm -hmm. and things that, that can go wrong as a leader, if you're not watching for the eyes, yeah. if you're jumping in and micromanaging and getting in the way and slowing things down, what are some of the key pitfalls to be aware of and that you need to take steps to avoid as a new manager? I mean, I think one of those key things is to really step back into, you know, often you've been in that position. You, you've moved up from being in the team to managing the team. And that puts you in a unique position to say, what worked for me? You know, what, what did I see that was working not only for me, but for the rest of the team? And what didn't work? So let's really understand what, what's the things that turn me off and let's let's make sure that I'm not doing those things for myself. So it is about challenging yourself and getting some real perspective on what you're there to do and how that differs now that you're in a management role. I think the other thing is about, you know, how can you influence? I think influence becomes more and more important as you go through the management chain, really. And it, it's it's not about doing the things or, or getting it done. It's influencing people to get those things done. And so what levers have you got to push and pull that can motivate people, that can persuade people that that's the right thing to do? And you can offer your help and support along the way. But ultimately, if you're just going to say, right, this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to lead the way and do it, and you're all going to follow me, it may work, but invariably it doesn't. So you've got to take that you know, clarity of purpose up front. I think that's one of the key things in the world of F1 and other high-performance teams. They're really clear as to what they're there to do. And if you've got that clarity of purpose and clarity of role that comes along with that, then you can really start to focus on, am I doing the right things? And a key thing that people can do to help them with that is to get a coach or a, a trusted advisor mm -hmm. and to challenge themselves as to, am I, do, am I doing the right things here? Is, the, is this the right approach? Are there other ways to do this? What else could I be doing? I remember once I was given a bookmark when I was an intern. So this goes way back. I was given a bookmark that said, are we doing things right or are we doing the right things? Right. Yeah. Awesome. 
Good stuff. Well, let's talk about you a little bit. I understand you've got an online course. Tell us about that. Yeah. So off the back, it's one of those uh, sort of key interesting elements of the world of F1 that was, to me, counterintuitive. Um, But when I grasped it and when I saw what was happening and when I talked to clients about it, it really started to hit home for people. And you mentioned early on, you know, F1, highly data-driven, you know, it's a really technologically advanced, loads of data flying about. And there's, you know, people make big, big decisions supported by a lot of data, a huge amount of data. And so you'd think that data was the first thing that people would be talking about. You know, how can we get more data? How can we get clearer on the data? How can we invest heavily in that data? And what they were doing is actually flipping that on its head. And the reason being that to get more data for a Formula One car, you need more sensors on that car and you need telemetry to actually send that data back out to help people sort of crunch the numbers and do something with it and uh, make a decision. And the thing about a sensor is they're yet to make sensors that have zero weight. (laughs) So even the lightest sensor adds weight to your car. And anyone who's been involved in any sort of racing or thinks about aerodynamics or things like that, Ad- adding weight is ne- rarely a good thing. So the heavier you, your car, you know, you're going to have a, a problem. So you can't just keep adding more and more data because it comes at a cost. And that cost is detrimental to the performance, the very performance you're actually trying to drive. So the way that McLaren and what I noticed um, in the world of F1 and the way McLaren were dealing with things is they put data last. Now, what they were doing is they're starting to be very, very clear up front on what are the results you're trying to drive. What is it about what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it in the sort of regulatory bounds or how it's aligned to your strategy and things like that. So be very clear on the results you're trying to drive. Then understand the actions that you have at your disposal that have an impact on those results. The next layer down is about people. So who are the people involved in making those decisions and putting them into practice? Who are the teams? How are the teams interacting? All sorts of people elements. And then comes the really fruity stuff, which is what insights do those people need to make the best decisions for the right actions that drive your performance? And then finally, you've got this D for data. And once you know the insights that you need, you can ask a very simple question, which is what's the smallest data set we need to drive those insights? Now, you can see how that would work in an F1 environment because you can actually say, right, here's the data that I need. Go out and get it and and help us make better decisions to when to pit the car or what to do from a tire strategy or all the other car design elements. What it actually means in the real world is that what you have is two things, really. One, you've got mainly IT or technical departments making decisions as to where you're going to get more data brilliant news we've come up with it we've investing in a new system that's going to give you more data around your production plant or more data around your sales figures or more data around your customer um, uh, demographics whatever that might be well that's great but it's on the assumption that people will be able to use that data digest it form their own insights and actually make better decisions and what I'm helping people to do is flip that on its head and start with the results and work your way down. And I love a good acronym. So you've got results, actions, people, insights, and data. So it's rapid performance. And so uh, that's my online course is it t- teaches people how, firstly, why that's important because it frees up their headspace. And it also brings power back to what I would term the operational manager 
because it says, I'm not going to wait for people to give me data. I'm going to figure out what data I need for the best insights, and I'm going to go and demand it from my support teams because those are service teams and service departments for your performance. And so if you can take that front foot, you can say, right, I don't want all of this bump that you're sending me, <laughs> all this you know, raw data and, and information in terms of reports. Don't give me that. I want these insights. I want to, these questions answered. And I believe, or you can work with the teams and say, in order to derive those insights, I need to pull this data together in this kind of format. I want you to analyze it in this way and help me make a better decision, which is what insights do. So that's nice. what the online course is all about. It's about rapid performance. Cool. Well, I would like to take a look at that. That sounds really interesting. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a saying, just because you can measure something doesn't mean you should. Mm. So I, I love the idea of going with the smallest possible data set, yeah. which makes a lot of sense. For a while, I was into ultralight backpacking, and right. I had a, a little gram scale, and I weighed everything down you know, to the gram. Yeah. And you know, there was a saying with that, which is everything weighs something. Nothing right. weighs nothing. Mm. You know, do you want to carry a 45 pound backpack? <laughs> if you do, then don't bother. But, yeah. you know, if, if you want to be able to move fast and not hurt your knees, mm. then everything weighs something. And that's the only data you need. You don't need all this other stuff that you could get from a piece of gear. Just what's it weigh? Yep. No, awesome. A- well, let's, let's learn a little bit more about you, Paul. Um, I've got a couple of lightning round questions for you. First one is... If you were in my seat and could interview absolutely anyone, living or dead, yep. who would it be and why? Who uh, you supplied me with some of these uh, potential questions, and I've listened to some of your previous episodes, so I'm a, a bit prepared for this. Firstly, I've, I've got my own podcast, so I, I have the privilege of being able to interview amazing people in, uh, and have that piece for me. And, and at some point in future, I'd, you know, we'll talk about getting you on as a guest as well and, uh, and sharing your story and your insights. Uh, but for me, I think what I really came to, and this comes came from a conversation I was having with a uh, a friend of mine this morning, actually report, uh, recording a podcast episode. I think I'd like to talk to somebody who has failed loads and potentially someone who's even given up off the back of that failure. Because we're always inspired by the people who are, you know, who've got the success and have done great things. But actually, who, you know, who are the, let's talk to more of those people who haven't succeeded and they've, they've had such a bad time of it that they decided that they had to give up. So I want to talk to some people who failed. <laughs> there we go. You might be able to find one or two of those. I think I think <laughs> in history there there might be a couple of failures. <laughs> I can think of I can think of a couple of high profile folks who failed and failed and failed <laughs> and then yeah. Okay. Next question. Favorite vacation spot and why? Oh I'd say probably skiing. Yeah, you know, I love to ski. I think there's there's a couple of things around. One, I, I prefer to be cold rather than hot, but I do like a a holiday where I've got to earn a bit of you know the the, the after après ski, and I've got to earn a bit of the benefit at the back of it. So I'm not one for just sitting by the beach. So I do like a skiing holiday that you know, and some places that I've been to. I think the probably Austria. There's some, some amazing skiing to be had in Austria and some even better apres ski. So uh, anyone who's been to the Musevert bar in, in Austria will know what we're talking about there. So yeah, a skiing oh, holiday. Nice. Well, come to North America, check out Whistler in Canada, check out uh, anything in Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Uh, some, some good stuff. 
Yeah, I've, I've yet to, to ski in North America, but that's on the list. Oh, good. Aside from a skiing holiday, where would you most like to travel? Whew. Well, I've had I've had a lot of sort of privilege of being able to travel around the world. As I said, I lived and worked in New Zealand for five years. In that time, I went back and forth from the UK. So I, I did get to spend a little bit of time in some countries in, um, you know, in Asia. I got to spend a bit of time in the US as well. I think there's there's two things that come to mind. One is is Africa. I haven't even touched upon. I think there's a load to be learned from Africa, but probably one that's a bit closer to home is my sister is married to a Tongan Kiwi, and I've met his family so many times in New Zealand. We lived and worked there in New Zealand for five years. We're so close, you know, only a few hours. Well probably like five or six hours flight to Tonga, but it seems very close in, in that situation. But we never got the opportunity to, to go out there. And I'd, so I'd love to go over to Tonga, spend some time with the family out there and just visit that environment and just drink it in. It's a little warm in Tonga. You sure you're going <laughs> to like it? Well, you know, I'll, I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll take, have some ice cold drinks and, uh, <laughs> and think of skiing. <laughs> All right. And my last question for you, sir, what brings you the most joy in your life? Oh, so I think the, you know, seeing the kids grow up, that's like, and seeing the decisions they make, the progress they make, um, how they are making mistakes and learning from them, hopefully <laughs> moving forward. So that has got to be one of the, the key bits out there. I think from a professional environment, it's probably mirrors that in some ways, which is I loved seeing people when their minds are blown by just thinking about things from a different perspective. So when I tell them about, you know, sausages and banking and how the two can connect, or, you know, we talk about rapid performance and you, you put data last in order to be data driven and you explain that to people and they go, Whoa, I, that's something I could do. And that I'm, and most importantly, that element of I, I'm going to do something off the back of this. Not only can I do something, but I am going to do, take some action to move forward. And that's what brings me professional joy is, uh, is seeing those moments. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I always ask at the end of every class, what are you going to do differently? You know, we yeah. sat here for an hour. We, had, we sat here for nine hours, Yeah, you know, did a lot, had a good time. But so what? What are you going to do differently? Yeah. And if you can't think of anything, then, then I've missed the mark. You know, I, mm. I want you to walk out of here changed somehow. Yeah, so I, good. I'd always I always say the success of any sort of training course or any event a workshop is if it if you walk out of there being interested, then you know that's all it is. You've spent some time being having some interesting stories and interesting time. But if you change your behavior, then that course or that moment has been successful. And that's yes. what it has to be. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Paul. This was a great conversation. We certainly covered a lot of ground, so really enjoyed that. How can people find you if they want to learn more? Uh, the best place to go is the website, so paulteasdale.co.uk. So that's P-A-U-L-T-E-A-S-D-A-L-E.co.uk. Um, you'll find one of the things you'll see first and foremost up there is you'll have a little pop-up saying, book a free 30-minute conversation with me. And that's the, the best way to connect is just set that up. Let's have a chat. If you want to email me directly, paul at paulteasdale.co.uk, but I love to connect with people. Please do reach out. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. So yeah, connect with me, have that conversation and let's, uh, let's see where it goes. Even if you're just interested to hear more of my ramblings. Awesome. Great. 
Well, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, comment, share, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Watch for my book coming September 20th. We will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Management Development Unlocked. Want more? Get a ton of insider tips and tools at GerardTrainingSolutions.com. 